As way of introduction, I want to start with a little uh, story, a little scenario for you. That is a young man, 16 years old. He's just gotten his license for the first time, uh, passed his driver's test, and he's with his dad. And his dad, uh, with love in his heart and a, and a desire to instruct his son, he's going to lay out some, some things before him. Now, uh, nothing is new about driving to the young man. He's been in cars his whole life. In fact, he's been driving for about a year with a permit with his parents, with his father primarily. So in one sense, nothing has changed. But in one sense, everything is about to change. And the father is, is an experienced driver. Through the years, he's, he's lost loved ones. He's, he's heard of really dozens of accidents through the years that resulted in minor injuries or more serious injuries. and He's not setting out to scare his son. He doesn't want his son terrified, but, but with the knowledge that comes with being a father of a, of a young man, he wants to, to tell him soberly of the dangers that are out there that usually accompany distraction. Taking things lightly, a, a moment that you're distracted by your phone or playing with your radio. In just a moment, that decision to take your eyes off the road can result in bodily harm. It can uh, result in a lifelong injury. It can result in his death or the death of other people at his hand. And so, with not desiring to scare his son, he, he lays this out and he, he gives him an encouragement to, to understand the responsibility to... to uh, be wise as he sets out. And with that, he puts the keys in his son's hands. Uh, we saw in uh, the last time that, that John was writing to us um, that uh, he has a, a desire, he wrote in chapter 1, uh, a desire for our joy to be full. But there are some warnings that John gives us in a, in a very similar sense to that father, right? John being a father in the faith to us. He's not trying to scare us. Uh, he loves his dear little ones. Uh, but he tells us, Christian, do not love the world. Because he understands in a moment of distraction, in the blink of an eye, we can make life-altering mistakes. Devastating, sinful choices we can set things in motion that can hurt ourselves and those around us in devastating ways for the rest of our natural life. In the blink of an eye, we can even lose our physical life. So last sermon um, from this text, last time I got a chance to preach, we saw that John addressed little children, fathers, and young men in the faith. Or in other words, Christians at every level of sanctification. And after addressing uh, the whole of the Christian life, right, no matter where you are in your sanctification, in your walk with God, beginning, midpoint, or towards closer to glory, he writes these words that we're going to take up now in the text. So if you will stand with me out of respect for the Word of God, we have three verses that we're going to take a look at. And again, remember 
what John has just written to us. These are the words of our God, brethren. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Almighty God, I pray, Father, that you would pour out your Spirit on us now, Father, that leads us into all truth. Open our hearts, open our minds. Father, press in on us. Remind us that we are forgiven in Christ. Bring to remembrance, Father, the things that we must confess to you, Father. Help us to see, Father, where we may be loving the world. That we may reject it and love Christ more. Glorify yourself, Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. So I have three points for you in this sermon that is entitled, Do Not Love the World. Do Not Love the World. Uh, the points will come out in succession as I get to them, so you'll just see them one at a time as I go through the sermon. Uh, but first point is, do not love the world. And then in parentheses there you see, the imperative. Right? Here is the command. Do not love the world. John is about to lay out for us. So if I can kind of set the architecture of what we're going to do here today. John is going to set out a command. And then he's going to give us kind of a basis for that command. And then he's going to make a very logical argument why that should be done. Now, of course, a command from God is enough. But that our reasoning and our emotions may come along, he's going to lay down a firm foundation and argue for this. So watch for that as we work through this and see if you notice it here. Uh, love, right? The word love that we see here is translated from the Greek word akapao. Or you may have a more familiar, uh, maybe more familiar with the, with the noun version, agape. Uh, our English word love suffers due to its broad application. We love a song. We love a restaurant. We love our family. We love the Lord. This one English word is used in all these situations because it's, it has a broad definition. This is not so in the Greek, or at least in the Greek New Testament, Koine Greek. There are two words in Greek translated as love and an additional two words that are referenced uh, all throughout uh, the New Testament or in the New Testament, uh, even though they're not specifically used. So we're looking at four different words referenced, two that are there, all of them in English translated love, and we want to focus in on what John is talking about. What form of love is he talking about here? So the first I'll take a look at is philia or phile, uh, um, philio. Uh, in the noun or, or adjective version, what, which is where we get the word Philadelphia from. So, can you guess what type of love philia refers to? Brotherly love, very good. That's, that's an easy one, huh? That's where the city gets its name, the city of brotherly love. Philia. The second um, is eros, and that's where we get our modern English word erotic from. 
Obviously, it has to do with the love found in a romantic relationship. And although it's not used in the New Testament, um, it is the form of love that is referred to in Hebrews 13 when the author states that marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled. The third form is the Greek word storge. It speaks of the love felt for family members, close attachments in life. Uh, This word also is not in the New Testament, but a negative version is referenced in passages such as Romans 1.31 or in 2 Timothy 3.3, and it's translated as unloving or heartless. Those passages state that people lack an appropriate storge, or in English we'd say they lack love, they're unloving, they're heartless. So take all that, all those definitions, and set them aside, because the fourth word and the one in the text is agapao, agapao. So again, take those other definitions, and that's not part of what we're talking about here. So I went through them so you can see that's not what's going on here. Agapao is the love Jesus refers to when he says, you shall agapao the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the love that we see in John 3.16 for God so agapao the world. This is the love in John 3.35 when he states, the Father, agapao, the Son, and has given all things into his hand. It's a high level of love. Turn with me, if you will, to the end of John's Gospel, chapter 21, to see these words in action. So, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, um, This is the same author that's writing the epistle of 1 John, right? So see how he uses it here. We're going to turn uh, to verse 15. You know the background here, what's happened? I'm laboring the point of what this word love means, so you can get a very narrow uh, focus on it, because it is much more narrow in the Greek than it is in the English. So I want you to focus in so that when John says, do not love the world, you can understand the emotions that he is talking about specifically. So John writing here in uh, the Gospel of John 21, verse 15, this is after, G- after Peter had denied Christ. This is after Christ had gone to the cross, and Peter had returned fishing, and Christ has risen, and Christ, the loving Savior that loves his, his stiff-necked, cowardice, hard-hearted children so much, he's coming to Peter, restore him. Verse 15 says, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agapao me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I... Say it, what is it? Philia. I tricked you. <laughs> philia. What was philia? Brotherly love. So you, you track in here? God says, do you love me, Peter, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? 
He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you like a brother. He said to him, feed my lambs. That's Christ, told Peter, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him again, a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agapao me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I philia you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you philia? Philia. He changes it. So twice he's asked him, do you love me? Do you, with that agape love, Peter would not answer. So he changes it. Do you love me like a brother? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you philia me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. So you see that the meaning, the, the specific words that John has been inspired to use, they have meaning, right? It, is, it was the, the resistance, the reluctance for Peter to even tell. He remembers, I'm sure, denying his Savior. He, he, he couldn't say that. He couldn't say to his Savior, I have that agape love for you. But here, he's using, John's using this word, and he's saying, do not agapae the world or the things of this world. That love that driving, fervent, prioritizing love. However, John tells us here, do not love the world. Do not show the type of affection for the world that the Father has for the Son. Do not agapao the world with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the reality of the situation is that Christ can be, I'm sorry, Christians can be identified by their love for God. We were told in 1 John, you can be identified as a Christian by your love for God. You can be identified as a Christian by your love for one another. And that's why it should be there. That's how the world can know that you belong to Christ. How Christians love one another. Not just the ones you get along with, with real good. Love. It takes work, right? Christians this is radical, can even be identified with how they love their enemies. Something different. Something unnatural to a fallen man. To love your enemies. Three ways you can identify Christians loving God, one another, and loving their enemies. But, we cannot be identified by loving the world. Totally different. In fact, the world demands that, don't they? They say things like when we speak the truth as Christians, we're being what? Unloving, right? You see the twisting. The way Satan comes all the time, he twists, he takes what is, and turns it upside down, and he presents it shiny and compelling. And our flesh can respond to it. But no, we're identified by how we love God, how we love one another, how we love our enemies, and how we do not love the world. Thank you. 
Take the pastoral example. If we love God, we cannot love the world. If we love the world, we cannot love God. It's a binary choice and there is no middle ground. You're not 51, 49, 10, and 90. You love God imperfectly, no doubt. But you love God or you love the world. You are heading somewhere. In fact, they are facing away from each other. So you're heading towards the world and away from God or towards God and away from the world. Well, if you're tracking with me, and I, and I hope you are, if you're tracking with John, at this point you should be asking yourself a question. Uh, I know I'm not supposed to love the world, but what exactly is the world? What is the world? I just highlighted John 3.16, where John states, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, yet here He says, Do not love the world. Same author, same Holy Spirit, same God, same living Word. Is John being inconsistent? Is he changing his mind? Certainly not. As love has different definitions, so does the word world. Our English word world is translated from the Greek word cosmos. And it can be defined in a number of ways. This is a biblical dictionary. I'm going to run through them. The last two were important, okay? But I'll run through them. Cosmos can be defined as, number one, an order of government. That's not what we're looking at here. Number two, the arrangement of the stars, heavenly hosts, and other heavens. Again, not our definition here. Number three, the universe. Still not here. Number four, the circle of the earth. Number five is one of the, the versions we're talking about here. See where it applies. The inhabitants of the earth, men, the human family. You see where it applies? For God so loved the inhabitants of the earth, men, the human family, that he gave his only begotten son. That's the cosmos from John 3.16. But what we're talking about here in 1 John 2 would be the last definition, defined as this, the ungodly multitude, the whole mass of men alienated from God and hostile to the cause of Christ. It's like this, do not love the world system because it is hostile to the cause of Christ. Do not love that world. Do not love that cosmos that is antagonistic and marching in opposition to everything that is good, demanding to be worshipped and carrying with it the lives and the souls of many to perdition. So when John tells us to not love the world, he's referring to the world system, the world philosophies, the world's cares, the world's values. Do not love the way that seems right to a man. But in the end, it leads to destruction. In the end, it leads to destruction. Well, you may think, that's easy, right? Easy. The world pushes the most extreme things. Uh, sodomy, drunkenness, drag time story hour, 
These things that, at least for many Christians, not all, but for many because of their upbringing, wasn't something that is particularly difficult for them to, to struggle with. And again, it, it can be. The Lord saves people from all backgrounds, right? I'm saying generally speaking, it's, it's easy. Okay, I don't love that. That's easy. What's for me here? I'm glad you asked. How about respectable sins? Respectable. You understand the way I'm using that? Of course, there is no such thing as a respectable sin. These are things that, well, they're just small things in our mind. right? So I have some for you. How about greed disguised as financial stewardship? Greed disguised as financial stewardship. Lack of discipline masquerading as being busy. Respectable sins. Lack of discipline masquerading as being busy. A marriage in need of help always presenting itself to the world and the church as perfect and in need of nothing. You guys are quiet. In the words of Bodhi Bauckham, if you can't say amen, you need to say ouch. <laughs> We're not done. How about gossip dressed up as concern? Gossip dressed up as concern. Slander in the form of a prayer request. We've all been to those prayer meetings, I assume. If you've been around any churches, we have been to a place where it, somebody has gone into to some form of something that is not godly in the guise of a prayer request. Right? Slander in the form of a prayer request. Sowing discord and calling it discipleship. Sowing discord and calling it discipleship. Brothers and sisters, what do all these things have in common? Just, just a list of things that bother me? Certainly not. Certainly not. They've all adopted a worldly system that justifies any sinful behavior by ascribing virtue to it. You see that? It, there's a, a justification for the behavior. It's, it's, it's polished. It, it is something that is um, presented as good. And it's the exact opposite. They've adopted a worldly system that justifies any sinful behavior by ascribing virtue to it. It is pragmatic. It is worldly thinking. And God condemns those who call good evil and evil good. We're greedy with our money. We lie about our marriages and cause destruction with our tongues. We justify it with smooth-sounding words. But does not the God who created the eye see us? 
Does not the God who knows the intentions of our heart call us to repent of such sinful acts? Oh dear Christian, we will battle, we'll battle and we'll sometimes fall into these temptations, but John's call is to not love the world. Not love the world and the world system. Don't cherish it. Don't go into your prayer closet and dig out your little hidden idol and shine it up and worship it and then hide it again and come out as though nothing's wrong when the Holy Spirit is testifying that there's something of the world that you must put to death in your life. John states that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John's words, not mine. But also, remember, remember John's words from chapter 1. If we confess our... Try that again. If we confess our... He is faithful and just to... Forgive us our sins. They cleansed us from all unrighteousness. Amen. What a blessing. What an amazing God. The, the more real, brethren, the more serious, the more soberly we see our sin, the blacker we see our sin. And I guarantee you, it's worse than you think it is. The truer you see it, the more glorious forgiveness is. So the point here, the point of John, the point of the message, isn't just to beat people up. It's to see sin and to call it what it is in your own life, access forgiveness, and go out in joy that a holy God would forgive you such wretched things. Point number two. Lying lusts and deceptive pride. This is the basis. Go to point two if you got it. Thank you, brother. So the imperative, do not love, and now the basis, right? The, the foundation by which this is. John gives a concise way of summarizing this world we are not to love. It's defined by lust and pride, and those things are not from God, but from this fallen world system. They are satanic in their very entrance into the world, the fall, we read about it, Charlie read about it, uh, but now abide in the members of every person ever born under the curse. So we saw where it comes from, but it's in us. Do you remember what Genesis 3 stated before Eve ate the forbidden fruit. So, I'll go over it. Charlie read it to us. So, when the woman, Eve, saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree, to, uh, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. 
So, so go back with me, if you will, prior to the fall. Back when Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship with their Creator. It, it, we really can't imagine it, right? We can try. Sin was not in the world. A couple of naked vegetarians running around a garden. Everything was good. Everything was good. Could, no, no, go, go forward with me from that point. Adam and Eve are standing over the body of their slain son, Abel. Adam created from the dust. God breathing life into him. Now their son, returning to the ground to become dust. The hands of their other child, Cain, who had murdered him. And it can all be traced back to what? The lust of the eyes. The lust of the flesh. Pride of life. Adam and Eve could not have imagined the things that they unleashed in the world. Adam specifically, as we all, as our federal head, we all fell in Adam. The things they unleashed, the wars, the genocide, floods, the myriad of things, everything you see every day on the news, all coming downstream from one act of disobedience in something that most of us would think would be relatively small because we ourselves are sinful. But one act, one lust of the eye that led to disobedience of a thrice holy God plunged the world into death, sin, into chaos. So this is not a small thing. This is not something that, Christian, you're going to get together on your own. You're just keeping it hidden and you'll take care of it. These are serious things. The love of the world destroys families. Destroys testimonies and lives. It's everywhere. Imagine Eve there, standing over her son. She once held him. She once nursed him. She once rejoiced at his first steps. Adam standing over his lifeless son in the grave. He taught him how to till the ground, build a house, how to offer his sacrifices to God. The thought could have never entered their minds of what was to come. Statistically speaking, I know we're not a large church, but statistically speaking, a church this size will see someone or somebody make a shipwreck of their life and hurt people and themselves because the love of the world is in them. Not the battle, the love of the world. So again, it's, it's, with, it's with a love for my brothers and sisters that I tell you and emphasize that this is no game. 
It's no game. So that's an example of what we're talking about here. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But it's not the basis that we're looking for here. In verse 15, John gives us the imperative, don't love the world or the things of the world. But in verse 16, he gives us the basis, and it's this. Because the world system is a lie. It's a lie. And Christians, we stand in Adam and Eve's position on nearly a daily basis. In this perverse and carnal culture, we have the words of God in our head. We have the words of God all around us. We have God's Spirit indwelling us as Christians. And then what? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life come up before us. We look at the forbidden fruit and we are tempted at that moment to believe the lie. To believe the lie. We all have our own areas that we know if we walked with the Lord for any length of time, you know how temptation comes at you. You know that it's going to come at you till the day that you breathe your last and step into glory. And so when, that, when, the, when the lie comes, as the serpent came before Adam and Eve and tells them about the desire to be made knowledgeable and how beautiful and pleasant things are to the eye, don't believe the lie. Don't believe the lie. I want to address um, the men for a moment. I believe that when it comes to the lust of the eyes, men are more easily stumbled. I think anybody past the age of puberty can afford me this point. And to be clear, the lust of the eyes is way bigger than just sexual immorality. But because of our current landscape and just how ubiquitous and how rampant these sins are, inside with Christian men that, that have confessed that the, the, the chaos that's been caused, um, and the, the ability for this sin to be hidden from man's eyes, of course, not God's. I would like to address it. So this is a call of action to men. For men to gird up your loins. Make war with your sin. To not believe the lie. To play the man. You know what I'm talking about, men. Let these words ring out in your mind. Don't believe the lie. Don't believe the lie. Don't love the world or the things of this world. It's no game. Christian men are destroying their lives, their marriages, their testimonies every single day. I don't know a group of men Christian men that I have not been in through the years where somebody has not been overtaken by this. 
In a way, there is no new sin under the sun. Men and women have dealt with these things for all of time, but there is a uniqueness in this time for these sins to be hidden from other men's eyes. And because of that, is swallowing men up. Don't believe the lie. Don't believe the lie, men. I have a question for you. Men, when you stumble in this area, do you feel like a man? When you stumble in this area, do you feel like a man? No, you don't. You feel shame. You feel guilt. You feel defeated. And rightfully so, because at that moment you are. That moment you are. But right now, right here, I call you men to look unto Christ. Your Savior that willingly took the shame and the guilt upon Himself. Remember, when you fall into that, the way you feel and know that your Savior Christ willfully took that on Himself, that you could be forgiven, that your relationship with your God could be robust and good and sweet. And let that ring in your mind. And say, how could I set this wicked thing before my eyes? when my Savior died for me. He stood in your place to pay for your sin. He waits even now ready to forgive all who come to Him in humble repentance. Don't believe the lie. Believe the way, the truth, and the light. Well, my dear sisters, it seems unfair to only pick on the men, but for time's sake, that is what we'll have to do for today. Don't worry, your number will come up at some point in time, I promise. I won't forget. In fact, Pastor Steve, do you want to take up Ephesians 5.22-24 next week? If you don't get that reference, you need to be reading your Bible more. Men flipping to their Bible right now to see what it says, and they realize that page has been ripped out of their Bible. (laughs) In all seriousness, I will give a brief caution uh, to my dear sisters in Christ. Be cautious of how you adorn your body. This fight uh, has defeated, it has shipwrecked any men. So just be cautious of how you adorn your body. Well, moving on. The lust of the eyes is the way that lies do enter into our soul, if you will. You will afford me that liberty there. I'm not speaking theologically, but they say the windows are the eyes to the soul. So the, the, the eyes are, are how that temptation comes in, right? But when those lies metastasize, then they per, they, the pride of life begins to take root. Certainly you can be given to pride all by itself, but sins run in packs. They're never alone. One thing leads to another, and 
This is how it often functions. The pride of life makes arguments contrary to the Word of God. We have a little satanic preacher, if you will, in our ear that says things like, you made a mistake, but your heart was in the right place. It's pride. You made a mistake, but your heart was in the right place. Or maybe I, I got a little upset, but they did dot, dot, dot. Sure, my husband is the head. My elders are the overseer, overseers. Your boss, your parents, take any form of authority in your life that God has sovereignly appointed over you and then add that one little conjunction, but... Pride says you don't have to confess your besetting sin to one another. You confessed it to God. You ought to confess it to God. But pride is what keeps you from confessing it one to another because you know that the accountability will come and you're still cherishing that sin. You're still loving the world. Pride says I don't agree with the decision the authority in my life made, so I am free. Pride, listen here, says, judge your actions based on your intentions, but judge your neighbor's actions and ascribe them intentions. I'll say that again. Pride says, judge your own actions based on your intentions, but judge your neighbor's actions and then ascribe their intentions. That's pride. Listen here to the, to the contrast, love. Agapao, punished the righteous Christ on behalf of the wicked. And pride, the pride of life, punishes the wicked on behalf of the self-proclaimed righteous. They're in contrast. There's no overlap. And brothers and sisters, it is a lie. Don't believe it. Don't believe this lie. I have a, an account from a, a young man um, that I want to share. I'll call him Lenny. Lenny was a, a young man that came to, uh, came to live with me and my family when we were uh, house parents. He was uh, six foot five. Very athletic, um, always happy, always helpful, great disposition. He was um, a very, um, he was a huge blessing to me and my family. And we enjoyed uh, being house parents and having him in our, in our home there as a foster child. Um, Lenny had a, a Christian background, but was not a Christian. But it would seem, uh, during his time living with us, that um, something happened. And uh, this, this young man, he was 16 when he came to us. By this time, I think he was around 17. He um, is what's commonly called to, is, uh, was on fire for the Lord. In fact, he went to, to a public high school with a lot of children. We were, we were at a megachurch at the time. A lot of children that grew up in this megachurch. And... Um, uh, the children began to kind of, the other kids that have grown up in church began to kind of follow him. And 
he was holding uh, prayer meetings that, in public school, and it was growing, and he was sharing the gospel. He, he was consuming sermons like you wouldn't believe. He, he loved Paul Washer, was one of his favorite preachers. He uh, was growing in leaps and bounds, and at a certain time, um, <coughs> he was 17 by this time, and um, we could see we were on our way out of the children's home. We were, our family was growing, and it wouldn't allow us to continue in that job. Uh, we were concerned for him a bit, uh, because this was all kind of newer to him. He needed some direction and some moorings still, so we, we looked into um, adopting him, and because of the, our position, it was, it was denied unless we, we moved out of that position. There was some valid concerns over favoritism that we had a number of foster kids. I understand the whole idea that we wanted to keep him on track because the love of the world is kind of there still. You see it. The love of the world is kind of there. Well, we moved on, and, um, and he aged out, and he, he, re, uh, he got in contact with his mother again. He had been removed from the home because of the bad influences there. And... Um, I'm very, very grateful for the Lord's kindness and providence. Uh, he kind of cut off a lot of uh, contact, all contact with, with godly influences in his life, as we do when we're chasing the love of the world. He stopped by randomly one day, and we talked for a while, and it was uh, very noticeable. It had changed a lot. Um, and then I, I got a call from his sister, uh, maybe a few months later, and um, he said, I, I can't find him, and I, I have a really bad feeling about this. And then I got another call um, shortly after that, that there had been a, a body that had washed up on the shore, and they couldn't identify it, because the, the water washing in and out had, had marred the face so bad they... They didn't have an identity on the body. But he was, he was wearing black socks, they said, the, the body. And that was, that was Lane. His black socks all the time. We got the call when they confirmed that it was him. My wife and I did. We were... We were heading out camping, and uh, we were driving out, and we got the call, and uh, we stayed up all night. The kids slept. My bride and I, uh, we reminisced, and we cried, and we laughed, and um, we were a few steps removed from the young man, very close with his siblings, and... Um, why do, I, why do I share this? What's my point? The love of the world. It's enticing. The ties from the past. The things that he thought he walked away from. That he did walk away from. We couldn't see what's going on in the heart. We can't see what's going on in your hearts, but the Lord can see. And, and, the, and the world was in him. The love of the world was in him. And I stand here and I tell you, he never planned to die that way. 
He never planned for his sister to get a phone call that there is a body that can't be recognized that needs to be identified. Because the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh put him on a path that ended with the loss of his life. And so many questions from those that were around him that saw him on fire and then know that he, he went chasing those old things. He left questions in people's minds. And I share that, and I, and I encourage you, and I exhort you, brothers and sisters, that no man plans to destroy his family. No mother plans to estrange their children. No employee plans on defaming God's name when it comes out that they've been doing whatever they've been doing. Or no person plans on bolstering their neighbor's unbelief by their exposed actions, but it happens all the time. It happens all the time. No man plans on going to hell, but most men go. Do not love the world or the things of this world. Point number three. Passing away or abiding forever. You saw the imperative, the command. The basis is what? Did I make that clear? The basis is it's a lie, right? Here's the command. The basis for following it is the opposite, is a lie, the things of this world. But here's the logic. Here's the logic behind it. You know, God does that a lot. Of course, He gives us commands. He gave us the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, right? But so often, God does something kind first. Then He gives His commandments. And then He says, He lays out the logical reason why it's good for us to follow it, because He's kind. That's what we see here. If we had do not love the world, that's enough. We're bound by that. That's God's truth. But He lays down a basis that, that the world system is a lie. And then in, in the third point here, we have the logic behind it. John gives us an imperative. He gives us the basis for this imperative. Now he's going to give us the logic or the logical reasoning behind the basis. That is how our gracious God gives commands. If I could summarize John here, it's like saying this. Do not love the world's way of doing things. It's all contrary to God and based on your fallen carnal nature. It doesn't come from God. And by the way, this system is coming to an end. God is going to judge and destroy it. But those who, dwell, who do well uh, will, will do the will of the Lord. They will be safe. So those who do the will of the Lord will be safe. The, the logic is, why would you set your affections on a lie that is passing away, that is going to be judged that is going to be destroyed. Jesus Himself speaks of the futility of loving things that are perishable in His Sermon on the Mount. He states, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth, where, where rust will destroy, where thieves will break in and steal. Rather, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. 
So, dear ones, how do you spend your time? How do you use your talents? Where do you exert your energy? Are they on things that are passing away? Are you emptying yourselves into things that will one day be consumed by fire? Or are you storing up treasures in heaven? Are you abiding in Christ? In the imperative, the basis, the logical reasoning, the conclusion is this. And given a basis that everything that's not of God is, is pride, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. You've been given a logical reasoning that those worldly things are passing away and should not capture your affections, but you uh, are the one who must acknowledge what this looks like in your life. The strongest man, the wisest man, and the man after God's own heart fell by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. So if you are stronger than Samson, if you are wiser than Solomon, if you are pursuing God more fervently than King David, maybe this message isn't for you. But for the rest of us, we cannot love the world or the things in the world, because if anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So I say to you, choose ye this day whom you will agapao. Choose ye this day whom you will agapao. Choose ye this day whom you will agapao. 